Genesis 4, verses 16 to 24, after which we'll turn once again to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and read from the first three verses. Genesis chapter 4, beginning at verse 16. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. Now to Enoch was born Erad, and Erad became the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael became the father of Methushael, and Methushael became the father of Lamech. Lamech took to himself two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. As for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice. You wives of Lamech, give heed to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me, and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Now, the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy in his first letter, chapter 3. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, then, must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable. Thus far the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to understand this quality that you have placed before the church as a necessity, a a necessary ingredient in the life and character of those who oversee the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Open our minds and our hearts to follow after you, to follow hard after Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. It might possibly surprise the Christian reader to discover gentleness on the list of apostolic qualifications for the office of overseer, the shepherd of Christ's flock. 
we might be inclined to think, well, if this has to be pointed out to the church, that an elder needs to be gentle, then maybe it also ought to be pointed out that he has to be living and breathing. That is how essential this quality is to the elder's life and ministry within the Lord's church. Not pugnacious, but gentle, uncontentious, peaceable. Now, if you're acquainted with the Bible's usual portrayal of shepherds, you'll probably recall that gentleness isn't one of the baseline competencies of their profession. Shepherds in the Bible tend to be some pretty rough characters. They didn't necessarily get along with other people. They didn't even necessarily get along with one another. The social niche of the average shepherd was somewhere way out yonder in the hills, far away from other people. A few examples. Remember the trouble that arose in Genesis 13 between Abram's shepherds and those of Abram's nephew Lot. Those two families with their respective flocks and herds had to separate from one another just to keep peace between their respective shepherds. And then do you recall Jacob's sons? A little farther on in Genesis 37. They were shepherds too. Shepherds who suffered this chronic state of contention, bitter contention among themselves, that eventually led to one of them ratting on some of the others, who in turn, not appreciating the words of correction, took and sold him, their own brother Joseph, sold him into slavery in Egypt. And there in Egypt, you remember, shepherds were held in such widespread contempt that Joseph, who by now is the prime minister of Egypt, Joseph advised his reunited brothers not even to mention to Pharaoh that they were shepherds. Don't even mention it. Don't let on to Pharaoh. Because, as Moses writes, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. And that's just Genesis. We might fast forward to Exodus chapter 2, verse 17, where we find the Midianite shepherds driving the daughters of Jethro away from the well. Girls who were simply trying to water their father's flock. These shepherds were no gentlemen. They drove the girls away, at least until Moses came along to save the day for them and water their flocks for them. One of the many wonders of David's rise to the throne of Israel was the fact that he started out his career, we might say, he started out not as some minor bureaucrat or government intern in the court of King Saul, No, David started out life in the private sector as a shepherd, of all things. A shepherd. 
which you might think is not an auspicious start in life for someone who is destined for the throne. And yet, providentially, among the skills that young David learned out there in the hills and fields, a skill that unfortunately turns out to be pretty useful for kings, was the ability to fight. To fight lions and bears, and eventually a nine-foot, nine-inch Philistine who day after day stood there in the valley of Elah taunting the armies of Israel and taunting the Lord their God. Little David came out to fight this giant bully, this public nuisance, Goliath. And he took along with him five smooth stones, but he needed only one. Shepherds in the Bible were rough characters. Don't mess with shepherds. They're fighters. But dear ones, here in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, your shepherds are a little different. Your shepherds are to be fashioned after the pattern not of Jacob's sons, nor even of Jesse's son. Your shepherds are to be fashioned after the pattern of God's son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd, the prince of peace. I probably need to say this at the beginning. Jesus certainly knew how to fight. He knew how to contend with his adversaries, and he knew how to win those contests with them. But it's not with his fists. He was no striker, as the 1611 authorized version or King James version of our Bible translates this word found here as pugnacious. He was no striker. He resolved conflicts not with the muscled arms of a carpenter's son. The servant of the Lord, in fact, never so much as cried out or raised his voice nor made his voice heard in the streets. That's not his way. Have you ever passed by a house, just walking by on the sidewalk, have you ever walked past a house that had some domestic argument going on inside the house? Going on so loudly that you could hear every word of it plainly as you walked past the house on the outside. Hearing that going on in the house that you're walking past makes you want to keep on walking in fact, it probably wants to make, uh, makes you want to pick up the pace as you walk by. When Jesus contended with his adversaries, it wasn't with his fists. It wasn't with insults or shouting or intimidation or mockery. He's gentle. He's gentle. Now it's true that sometimes he's firm with them 
often he's direct with them. But he's always in control of himself. He's always gentle. That's his baseline character. That is the position from which he approaches people. And in a spirit of gentleness, he addresses the immediate need, whatever it might be. Which is no doubt why so many people, especially notorious sinners like tax collectors and harlots and so on, it's why they loved him so much. He didn't ignore them. He didn't browbeat them. When Jesus had to contend with sinners, he contended by means of the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. But even there, he didn't contend by swinging it around, swinging the word of God around so wildly to cut people down like you see the hero wielding his sword in some of these epic Hollywood battle scenes. That's not the way you use the word of God. Tragically, that is the way some men use it, however. It's the way some men do. No, Jesus uses the word of God surgically. Surgically. To heal them. In Hebrews chapter 4, we discover that this word of God in the mouth of Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd, is sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing, listen to this, as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So he's got a sword... Euclidean sharp in its blade, but with it he's not a fighter. With its blade he's actually more of a surgeon, separating where necessary even joints and marrow, thoughts and intents. With the word of God he carefully lays the matter open and he fixes it. He fixes it. I can recall my late brother-in-law, who'd been an Army Special Forces medic in Vietnam. He used to tell the story of a fellow combat surgeon who was an older man than he, who could take a scalpel and a stack of cigarette papers and blindfold, make a freehand incision through exactly five of them. Not four, not six. In fact, not a mark was left on the sixth cigarette paper down. Well, just as that surgeon knew how to use a scalpel, Christ knows how to use the Word of God with steady and gentle hand. When the Lord Jesus Christ corrects people, he is no butcher, as men too often are butchers. He's the veterinarian in the field, 
tenderly mending one of Christ's beloved sheep. And this careful but effective use of the word of God was Jesus' regular practice, beginning at least as early as those 40 days that he spent in the Judean wilderness. He used this skill against the archenemy of God's people, against Satan the adversary himself. And after 40 days of fasting and answering those temptations in the wilderness, answering each one of them from memory with a fitting line of Deuteronomy. After this, Jesus met and vanquished many more enemies of the kingdom of God, among them scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, kings, and governors. And he did so with the word of God. So often, in fact, do the Gospels portray Jesus embroiled in some controversy or other with his adversaries that back in 1970, John R.W. Stott published a book entitled Christ the Controversialist. It was required reading at Geneva College back in the days I was there in the late 70s and early 80s. Because Jesus, although he was never contentious, he knew how to contend and successfully whenever he had to. Now here's the point. So it is with Christ's under-shepherds, the elders and overseers of his church, because they serve not to dominate or lord it over others, like the ambassadors of pompous, overbearing, earthly kingdoms tend to do, These men serve in the meekness and might of Jesus Christ as the ambassadors of Christ. Christ, the gentle shepherd of the sheep, the prince of peace, who at length, once every battle was behind him, all of those arguments were behind him. He laid down his own life for the sheep. Our elders represent him. I'd like us today simply to consider a couple important aspects of application regarding this gentleness required of overseers in the Lord's church. And these applications apply not merely to the elders among us, whether present or future. In large measure, they apply to us all because they're Gentleness is listed right along with kindness, goodness, faithfulness. There it is among the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. It's the fruit born of those who walk no longer by the flesh, but by the Holy Spirit. So cultivate it in yourselves and expect it from your elders. My first point, and I suppose it's more of an observation, has to do with pastoral care. And it's this. People find it hard to approach and confide in an elder that they don't trust to be gentle with them. 
People find it hard to approach and confide in an elder they don't trust to be gentle with them. It's very hard to be treated roughly, you know, by anyone. But especially by an elder who is presumably a seasoned veteran of life and someone, therefore, who really ought to know better than to be rough with people. Let's say you've gone to this man for help with a marriage problem or for personal support through that long, dark valley of divorce or a breakup or some other personal rejection. Let's say you've gone to him for help in a time of grief or time of social embarrassment or distress. It's very hard to be treated roughly at such a time as that. Now, please don't misunderstand me on this. Don't think that I've suddenly gone soft. If there's sin involved, there's certainly a time to confront people with the sins that they may that may have contributed to the situation. There's a time to urge repentance on the sinner who may be feeling the effects of his own sin. But an elder's good judgment in these things only follows a careful look into the facts of the case. And those facts are going to be forthcoming only when the elder has earned himself a reputation for fixing problems, not fixing blame. The good shepherd carries his rod and staff, not so as to lord it over those allotted to his charge, not to cause his people personal anxiety. The shepherd's rod and staff properly used comfort those who know that they're being protected by men of great and gentle hearts, men who tenderly care for them. That's gentleness in the giving of pastoral care. A second point of application relates to the debates and discussions in which we take part. Debates and discussions ranging from interpersonal private discussions we may have to the public speeches that an elder might make on the floor of synod. My second point then is this. In our debates and discussions... We are never completely in the right if we're not gentle with one another. We're never completely in the right if we're not gentle with one another. If you win the debate, if you make your point or win your case, then maybe the best practice for the winner is just to forego the victory lap. Forgo the happy dance that you won. There's a famous debate that took place many years ago at the University of California at Irvine. I suppose it was sometime in the 1970s. I don't know the precise date. But it was a debate on the existence of God. The contenders, pro and con, were Dr. Gordon Stein, who was an atheist, and Dr. Greg Bonson, a Christian 
a professor of logic at University of Southern California and ordained minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Dear ones, if you haven't already heard it, you need to hear this debate, which you can probably still find on YouTube or some other public space, at least in audio form, if not video. You can probably still find that debate. And you need to hear it, not only so as to have the two sides put plainly before you, by intelligent men who stridently held their respective positions. I commend it to you today because I want you to hear the gentleness, the winsomeness, the yearning for his opponent's heart that comes through in the reasoned argumentation of a Christian man. Dr. Bonson won that debate, resoundingly in my opinion, and he won it not only for the hard substance of his logical argumentation that there is a God and that, in fact, that God is the God of the Christians, the biblical God. He won it because of the genuinely sweet and gentle disposition he maintained from the beginning of the debate all the way through to the end. Now, you'll notice that so far in the sermon, I've made absolutely no mention of Cain's descendant Lamech, about whom we read in our Old Testament passage from Genesis 4. Lamech, according to that genealogy, was a man of the sixth generation from Adam. After the close-up and detailed story of Cain's murdering his brother Abel, the mere names of Lamech's intervening forebears are listed in verse 18 of Genesis 4. Five generations of Cain's family all condensed down into a single verse. And then at verse 19, the Holy Spirit again expands on the story of this man, Lamech. And it quickly becomes clear that for those five intervening generations of humanity, sin had been festering within the family of Cain. Lamech comes along and distinguishes himself in biblical history in two ways. First, by his introduction of polygamy into the human race. He took two wives. Overreaching the command of God as it was in the beginning, this man took into his home concurrently, not one wife, but two. But overshadowing even that first overreach is the degree to which Lamech lowered the threshold of human social interaction. Diminished down to zero the surpassing value of human life. Gone now from the heart of Lamech is kindness. Gone is goodness. Gone is faithfulness, gone is gentleness, gone is self-control. Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, he said. You wives of Lamech, give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me, and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold.
Six generations it took for humanity to fall this far. Hundreds of generations later, here we are. Here we are, living in a lost world that doesn't bat an eye at the extermination of over 50 million unborn children in our country alone. Over 50 million children who never had so much as an opportunity to wound or otherwise inconvenience their parents. We live in a nation polarized by public discourse that's poisoned on every side to a degree that it hasn't been in probably 150 years or more. Where today in public discourse is reason? Where is forbearance? Where is gentleness? Gentleness doesn't grow by nature in the solid rock of the fallen human heart. There is no room for it there. There's no light there's no nourishment for it to grow. If it's to be found anywhere, let a spirit of gentleness prevail among God's people, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let it be found here. Let it be found in the character and life and ministry of our elders, present and future. But let each one of us resolve today in our hearts by the might and power of the Holy Spirit. Let it begin with me. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for every facet of his being, every deed of his ministry. We thank you for all of the wonderful things that he has done and for all the terrible, ungentle things that he always left undone. Our trust is in him. Our hope is in him. We pray that by your mighty spirit, you might so work in stirring up the hearts of each one here, that we might yearn to grow into his likeness, that we might grow into the fullness of the stature that belongs to Jesus Christ our Lord. We ask in his name. Amen.